Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Jim Paul. Jim Paul, for 19 years, was the executive director of Global Policy Forum, and he was the chair of the NGO Working Group on the UN Security Council. He is the author of a just-released book called of Foxes and Chickens, Oligarchy and Global Power in the UN Security Council. Jim Paul, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. It's great to be with you. I'm afraid to ask who the chickens are, but the the general thrust seems to be that the UN Security Council is even less democratic than we imagined. That's right. In fact, uh, there is this thing about uh, uh, foxes putting foxes in charge of the chicken coop. And uh, this is the inspiration of this title. Uh, we have the five permanent members of the Security Council, who are sort of more or less the foxes, but, and the chickens are more or less everyone else. And the thing about foxes is, of course, that they eat chickens. And so the idea that the Security Council is set up in such a way that the very powers that uh, do everything to dominate the world and to, uh, let's say, eat up the chickens, really, to uh, uh, have their way with the rest of the countries uh, are put in charge of them. It's, uh, uh, it's one of those the things, it's like the, the um, uh, king's uh, clothes in the, in the fairy tale where all the people say, well, how beautiful the clothes are. And in this case, the Security Council is is viewed by many, including by many uh, to the left of center and uh, liberal internationalists and so on, as being this as sort of the one legitimate uh, institution for uh, the re- resolution of international conflict and grievance and the protection of international peace and security. And what I'm arguing in this book is that uh, this is the this is the wrong institution for doing that, and of course uh, we really need badly something else. It does seem rather unusual on its face to put five of the biggest weapons dealers, including some of the biggest war makers, in charge of an institution supposedly created to eliminate war making. That 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 sh- should seem a problem to most people uh, up front, shouldn't it? It should, but in fact, uh, this is it's funny the way ideology works and how it is that people manage to ignore. I mean, intellectuals are, you know, famous for ignoring some of the most important things. And in this case, I mean, it's, uh, it's actually the far right that hates the U.N. Security Council and uh, prefers to see the United States use its power directly and uh, is uh, sort of upset uh, any time that the U.S. doesn't get its way 100% of the time. But actually, as I argue in the book, the U.S. dominates the U.N. Security Council uh, in a way that's uh, quite astounding when you begin to look at it very carefully. And that's, sometimes I use the, the, the mafia term, the capo dei capi, which is to say the boss of bosses, and so the U.S., among the five permanent members who all have the veto, the U.S. is the, is the, the leader of the, 
is the power that exercises um, influence by far the most in that, uh, in that setting. And, and, and how does it do that, and, and how does it do it both, you know, in public ways that we know of, official vetoes and so forth, and how does it do it uh, behind closed doors? Well, the veto is, is itself interesting. The veto is, is the veto and permanency are the two kind of central sources of power of the government members. Uh, permanency, it, <laughs> it, it's hard to um, overstate the, uh, the importance of permanency because the other ten members who are elected by the General Assembly um, are only uh, on, sitting on the council for two years, and they scarcely are, you know, elected before they have to leave, whereas the permanent members are there all the time. They're, uh, <clears throat> they're, um, they're, they're, they're foreign services that have a very deep knowledge of the council and, and its rules, and, and so they manage to, uh, to use their permanency uh, constantly uh, in, their, in their own favor. And the, uh, the veto uh, is used most of the time uh, behind closed doors. It's often said nowadays that, that the permanent uh, members don't use their veto very much. There's a very strong uh, public opposition to the use of the veto internationally. And so they prefer just to use it privately. And basically how it works privately is that, in the first instance, they threaten to veto anything if it comes before the council in the in the official meetings, and so the rest of the council members, the ten elected members, or the even the other permanent members, uh, draw back and <clears throat> decide not to go forward with a particular idea, with a particular resolution, or what have you. So that's the it's the I call it the the hidden veto. One of my colleagues uh, sort of came up with that concept, but it's one that's very very widely understood, but often just sort of overlooked as if this isn't happening all the time and this sort of hegemony or despotism within the privacy of the council. But um, there's a variety of other ways that some of the members uh, dominate the agenda of the council. Uh, they, uh, they have essentially veto power over the agenda and the, and the program of work of the council, so nothing really comes before the council that they don't agree to, and that's a reason why there are many, many conflicts around the world that never come before the council because, uh, you know, permanent members in particular in the United States don't want it to. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a whole variety of tools that they use. They actually are also able to um, have their own um, high-level officials in the, in the UN uh, secretariat, officials that deal all the time with the Security Council and the United States. Uh, I call them fiefdoms, and the U.S. Uh, has a fiefdom of the Department of Political Affairs, which is probably the most significant uh, department of the U.N. Secretariat that deals with the Security Council, and that is the person who's been the uh, Undersecretary General, for, uh, the head of that department, has been a U.S. Uh, diplomat for quite a long time, um, or was a diplomat, I mean... The, the whole process of the naming of those people is the general is supposed to be able to name uh, the heads of the departments 
uh, him or herself without any outside interference. But in fact, the evidence is very, very strong that the uh, that the key permanent members, and particularly the U.S., uh, simply uh, pass along a name and say, this is the person we want in that post, and, and that person gets the post. So there are all these different mechanisms that they use and that the U.S. in particular uses. And last but not least, we should mention the fact that as far as the smaller countries on the council is concerned, the U.S. is constantly threatening them with, uh, and we've even seen this in, sort of in public recently with the, with the question of the Palestine uh, vote, uh, the, the vote on Jerusalem. And uh, the United States simply says, well, you know, he, you, 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 you'd like to get some aid from us? Well, you better vote the right way in this, or things like that. Uh, and, and yet that seems like uh, an example uh, that bucks the, the general trend, that the, the General Assembly uh, is able on these rare occasions to override a veto with this uh, uniting for peace uh, procedure. And uh, on other occasions, things like a, a, a treaty to ban the possession of nuclear weapons make their way uh, into existence despite... The, the opposition and the the uh, you know the, the, the fervent opposition of the United States and other big powers uh, are there are there some well, cracks of light here in the in the system? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, we uh, if you're absolutely right in saying that there are, the UN involves a number of different um, bodies and the General Assembly it reflects much more the will of uh, uh, all the members, uh, the member states, uh, and the, uh, on the other hand, the uh, the uh, Security Council is uh, is really this sort of private institution that's run first and foremost by the United States and then by the five members. So they're very different. Uh, the difference is that the uh, um, the UN Security Council has a, uh, a binding uh, legal power over all the member states, and the resolutions of the General Assembly don't have that. Now, when, uh, it, the, uh, when it comes to Uniting for Peace, there's uh, more of a binding character, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't work out the same. So that the, uh, having passed that resolution, uh, which is, um, significant in its symbolic uh, power, and uh, nonetheless, it's not the same as it having passed the UN Security Council. So the Security Council r- retains its uh, its kind of hegemony in the international system, both in terms of law and in terms of the uh, you know the history of power and so on. I see. I, I think I want to. I want to add to that, though, yeah. that, I mean, if, even if the General Assembly hasn't uh, succeeded in taking over from the uh, Security Council um, a kind of uh, leading role in international questions, nonetheless, uh, international security questions, uh, nonetheless, uh, the possibility that member states would explore and use the General Assembly and other mechanisms, including even 
using the, their leverage in the uh, in the Security Council more uh, robustly than they've done so far. All these are things that people have to start thinking about. And in the book, uh, towards the end, and thinking about uh, how we go forward, I talk a lot about how different ways that the Security Council could could and should be changed. You mentioned not only uh, you mentioned that the United States threatens smaller countries. Uh, it also, uh, as you say in the book, uh, offers rewards, uh, bribes to smaller countries. Uh, it also spies on their delegations to the United Nations to know uh, up front uh, what's happening. Just as it spied on the delegations to the meeting that created the United Nations in the first place, is is that a big part of of its power? Well, I think it is. I mean, it's, of course, the United States is not the uh, only country that has uh, secret intelligence services, but it, like, as is true with virtually everything else, the United States has more of this than anybody else and uses it much more. And, of course, the U.N. is right here in, on, on U.S. national territory. So, for instance, there's quite a lot of evidence having to do with the way the U.S. Um, spied on delegations during the run-up to the uh, Iraq uh, War uh, resolution in uh, late uh, uh, 2002, and uh, the last half of 2002 and early 2003, uh, when the U.S. hoped to be, to be able to get a resolution through. Now, that's an example uh, where all the spying did not, in the end, produce the resolution that they wanted, but because of all the leaks, and because of the very, very strong feeling that people had, even there was a woman in the in the um, uh, secret intelligence apparatus of the United Kingdom that Catherine provided uh, quite a lot of quite a lot of information on this, and it was all in the Guardian and many other newspapers. So yes, they they um, they uh, managed to penetrate even the most uh, private um, rooms that uh, of the. Non-permanent members, the elected members of the council, who were meeting to try to decide what to do, and uh, they—I was told by various ambassadors that they uh, would speak to their counterpart in the U.S. or somebody in the U.S. mission who made it clear to them that they knew what had gone on in the meeting. So it's the <laughs> secret. Um, investigation, but it's also one that the United States wants wants them to be aware that they can't uh, hide that they're that the U.S. is going to know everything that they are doing and saying, and this has a let's say a chilling effect to say the least. However, again, they didn't in this particular case they didn't succeed, but I think most of the time they're able to know what's going on and use that to their advantage and. Get uh, let's say ninety eight percent of the resolutions they want passed, and we should point out passed by uh, very often uh, all uh, voting members of the council. Who have fifteen votes to nothing, uh, and I think it's very funny because experts in the, on the council often say this is good to have resolutions that are uh, voted by all the council members. Uh, this shows the unity of the council. It helps to persuade wrongdoers and so on that they need to pay attention and so on. But in fact, um, it, it looks a little bit to me like uh, sort of a one-party state that 
basically everyone falls into line. And if you look at the way the votes are uh, taken, the way resolutions are actually passed, the United States, with some help from the U.K., writes up a resolution uh, and then very often tables it uh, and says to the other members, you have um, you have 24 hours, uh, we're going to vote on this. It may, may even be tabled and late in the afternoon of one day. They say we're going to vote on it tomorrow morning. So there's absolutely no chance that these other member states uh, sitting on the council can... Uh, can uh, bring the issue back to their foreign ministry, that they can discuss it among themselves, and so on. Now, there's usually a brief uh, discussion with the other permanent members. Uh, usually France is brought in on it, uh, and uh, the, the Russians and the Chinese, but they, and they're sometimes given a small uh, chance to alter this or that phrase, but basically it's something that's cooked up by Washington with its... Uh, British allies, and then uh, goes forward and it's voted on, and everyone is expected to vote for it, and and uh, you better not say anything different. It, it, it so seems it's a, it's, a, it's a very despotic institution. I mean, you can't imagine, and they're always talking about democracy uh, in the world and uh, how there's a need to spread democracy and so forth. But this is the most undemocratic uh, arrangement you can possibly imagine. The the thing that strikes me about this is that despite this sort of control of the agenda and uh, secret use of the of the threat of the veto behind closed doors, uh, what emerges in terms of the public record uh, is the the U.S. as the as the primary user of the of the official veto in public during the past half century or so, and not for what people might imagine as noble independent causes, but for things like defending apartheid in South Africa and Israel's wars and occupations and chemical and biological weapons and genocide in Rwanda and weapons in outer space and an embargo on Cuba and uh, nuclear weapons proliferation. I mean, it's a horrendous uh, record of the causes for which the the veto has been used, is it not? Yes, well, that's very well said. And, of course, it, it, it's that kind of consciousness that is very, very rare among people who write about and talk about the U.N. Security Council. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there are, there are dozens of books that are written every year about the Security Council and conferences and uh, lectures and everything else, and uh, nobody... It's considered to be extremely impolite to say things like what you've just said, and what, of course, I say in uh, greater, greater length in the book. I mean, this is uh, that's right. Just the, the United States uses its power in this way, just as it uses its power outside the realm of the Security Council. It keeps various issues off the agenda of the Security Council completely when it's involved in intervening in war-making and so on. Uh, and then you have, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 uh, the uh, examples can simply go on and on. This is, like, this is a despotic global uh, system of power in which you know, this one country has, you know, 800 or 1,000 military bases all over the world. It has all the 
nuclear weapons, it's constantly intervening. I mean, I think um, we, if you look around the world uh, in any one day, you see dozens and dozens of cases where the United States is either at war or in, uh, you know, has special operations forces, it has a CIA operation going on or something like that. So it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a nice international system, but, but the official propaganda line, whether it be in the New York Times or uh, or uh, you know other many other, or academic journals is that the United States is you know indispensable country. It's the leader um, that everyone looks to, uh, the necessary glue that holds together the international system and all this sort of thing. I read, a, we're, we're speaking with Jim Paul, whose book is Of Foxes and Chickens, Oligarchy and Global Power in the UN Security Council. Jim, I read a, an analysis recently that seemed to make sense to me, and I wonder if you agree, which was that contrary to the popular idea that the U.S. used to be isolationist and rejected the League of Nations and became internationalist and ratified the, the UN Charter, that in fact the League of Nations would have put the U.S. on an equal plane with other countries, whereas the U.N., as it was created with the veto and essentially the right to opt out of anything and on U.S. soil with U.S. financing and so forth, that if the League of Nations had had all of those same characteristics, it would have met everything that Senator Lodge and other opponents wanted and would have passed in, in 1919. Uh, that in fact the U.S. agenda has always been one of dominating the rest of the world, uh, and the UN, uh, you know, measured up, whereas the League of Nations didn't. Well, I think that uh, uh, that it's, it's very interesting to compare the League of Nations with the UN, and uh, so I want to speak to that, but I also want to speak to this business about isolationism too. So I'll, let me get the go to the other one first, which is to say the way in which the, the two institutions are similar or different. The, the, the League of Nations had a security council. It had, I mean, it didn't call it the security council. It was the council of the League. And there were uh, uh, permanent and non-permanent members. So the, the UN Security Council has copied a lot of the way that the League of Nations was set up, um, and the uh, the difference was that the uh, big power, the permanent members, um, didn't have unique veto. Uh, that's where the the the, the, the present Security Council is different and more uh, more restrictive uh, in terms of the powers of the great power. The, the, the non-permanent members of the of the um, League of Nations Council were themselves able to block uh, decisions, and uh, so the League um, was uh, was the first experiment, you might say, of this type of thing. Would uh, Lodge have uh, and and company have approved? The Security Council that we know today, because of its more restrictive, uh, the more restrictive character of the powers of the uh, of the five. Um, well, it's, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think that basically Lodge and and the rest of them were not at all keen on 
seeing this kind of an institution coming into being. I think there's more to it than simply the mechanisms of the uh, the way it's the institutional setup. You know, it was more. It was also about whether or not this was a good idea or in the interest of the United States to be involved in in this kind of an uh, an initiative. They were opposed to that. And there were many who, of course, who were very opposed to the uh, um, to the UN as well, and and uh, Roosevelt and uh, and uh, and his people were uh, went to great pains to set up um, uh, civil society institutions in the United States to to lobby for a UN and and uh, and so there were there were senior people in the Republican Party, it was the effort was always to keep uh, Republicans in the game as well as Democrats, and so John Foster Dulles was one of the people who was very much in favor of the U.N. They used the churches in order to promote the founding of the U.N. and so on. So they, 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 they learned their lesson, you might say, and, and went to great pains to um, get public support in the United States for a UN. So let's look at the question of um, uh, the uh, um, uh, how the UN uh, and uh, fits into this business of so-called isolationism of the United States. And I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding about. Uh, the posture of the United States towards the rest of the world, uh, and uh, a view that the UN uh, represented this uh, marvelous uh, liberal internationalism that was really going to solve the problems of the world. I think the United States, uh, we can see in the whole history of the United States, a um, a very aggressive posture towards. Uh, expansion and and the people, the liberal internationalists who are always wringing their hands about the problem of uh, uh, return to uh, isolationism and so on, really don't know the history of the U.S. The U.S. was never an isolationist power at all. It was very, very aggressively expansionist and very, very. Got about one minute left, Jim. Just so you know. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that I think we need to. The experts in international affairs who are constantly talking about isolationism and, and internationalism uh, very, very uh, mess up the, our understanding of this issue. Uh, indeed. Um, the, the, the book of Foxes and Chickens, Oligarchy and Global Power in the UN Security Council uh, by our guest Jim Paul. Everyone should read. Jim, if, uh, if it's possible, in less than a minute left, can you start to talk about uh, what should be done? Reform, revolution, what, what do you recommend in the book? <laughs> the more the better. <laughs> uh, yeah, in the book, um, I talk about the need for a international citizens' movement to, uh, to demand uh, institutions that are going to satisfy our need for peace, peace and security. Uh, I don't talk about the, too much about the, the side of uh, international uh, um, economic issues, but of course that's very, very much a part of it, and it's 
it, that can be seen also in the act, activities of the security council itself. Um, people so we, will we, people will have to go to the book to to get the answers, and I highly recommend it. It's called "Of Foxes and Chickens: Oligarchy and Global Power in the UN Security Council." Jim Paul, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Yeah, nice to be with you. Thanks. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.